0: Welcome to the podcast Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics at
1: Talbot School of Theology here at Biola University. And I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. We're here today with our good
0: friend and colleague at Denver Seminary, Dr. Craig Blomberg, who is Distinguished Professor of New Testament at Denver. And Craig, you've been there 30 plus years. Right, it's true. That's amazing. Quite a tenure, and uh, you've got a brand new book out entitled "Can We Still Believe in God?" Subtitle: Answering Ten Contemporary Challenges to Christianity. Craig's a New Testament specialist, uh, but tackles in this book uh, areas that are outside of New Testament, but yet you bring the same kind of insight to these questions that you do to uh, matters of New Testament scholarship. So. Uh, welcome. Glad to have you with us. We so appreciate your book on this, uh, th- these, just a wide variety of subjects. I'm sort of curious to know, to start out with, uh, what motivated you to write this? Because this is not sort of your typical New Testament scholarship that you've been involved in. And how did you pick the subjects, you know, the 10 Contemporary Challenges? How did you pick those out uh, and choose to focus on those?
2: Yes, thank you. Well, it was about five years ago, and uh, the little um, I spent, little time I spent in the blog world, was still enough for me to realize that I was seeing a lot of the same uh, reasons for skepticism over and over again, and uh, thinking that there have been a lot of good books and articles written on these topics, but they tend to come from professional apologists or philosophers, occasionally maybe an Old Testament professor, certainly theologians. But I couldn't think of a single book uh, in recent memory by a New Testament scholar that was addressing them, and I kept thinking about passages that I thought were very relevant Um, but that have seemed to be underutilized in these conversations. And so I experimented by uh, unscientifically uh, surveying a couple dozen websites and figuring out what I kept seeing and found uh, about 10 topics that aren't identical to probably what the top 10 might be today, although a lot of them would be the same. Uh, But uh, you got to make decisions at a certain time and then see if anybody wants to uh, support a book that you're thinking of writing. And I did and Baker book house jumped at it. Uh, It's under their imprint Brazos and uh, behold, here's the book.
0: So here, here are some, here are the questions some of the topics there's a chapter on on the problem of evil Uh, there's a chapter on hell there's a chapter on slavery gender and same-sex relations chapter on miracles uh chapter on the the violence in the bible prayer and predestination and then one that i wasn't expecting uh Mm -hmm. on on, it was the last one on the alleged undesirability of the christian life Uh, we'll get into that one a little bit more i think in a bit But, uh, Sean,
1: which one of those do you want to start with? Well, let's start with the classic question that is a timeless question, the problem of evil and suffering. And I really enjoy this chapter because I teach a class in our apologetics program here on evil and suffering, and I approach it as an apologist. But you uniquely look at this issue through the lens of the New Testament. So maybe unpack an insight that would help us from the angle in which you're coming to address this challenge.
2: Sure. There is— Passage in Second Peter chapter 3 that has always caught my attention, particularly verses 8 and 9, which read, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Um, Part of this is uh, a a quotation or at least an excerpt from uh, Psalm 90, um, verse 4, where uh, already in Old Testament times, people wrestled with uh, the issue of if God wants to and can bring an end to suffering, why doesn't he? Why doesn't he do it quickly? And the emphasis of the response seems to be um, God's timing is not our timing, and in the span of eternity, what uh, what He considers quick at times seems very long and drawn out for us. But um, He will bring an end to suffering and evil. When He does, though, um, it will be in Conjunction with the day of the Lord, uh, which we now understand to include the return of Christ, and at that point, there will no longer be any more chance for anyone to become a believer um, and so the line that that really strikes me there in the second half of verse nine instead he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance, Um, Jesus will return. Um, God will make all things right. But in doing that, he has to destroy all evil, including the evil that's in people, which means um, people are either condemned or they're purified and resurrected and glorified. And that's not going to be a world that's similar to ours. So uh, while it's like our current world, here are your marching orders. Um, Help as many people as possible not to perish.
0: Hmm.
1: As a follow-up to that, let me ask you a question. You share in the chapter about a story from John 5 and then a story of a healing in John 9. And and, and and I think you know where I'm going with this, so I'm going to let you run with it and explain the significance of these two passages as it relates to the New Testament's perspective on evil and suffering.
2: Well, there, there certainly are a lot of people um, who uh, take one of, of two opposite ends uh, uh, or extremes on a spectrum of opinion, and uh, one is to say, um, the day of miracles is gone. Uh, The day of uh, spectacular, um, sometimes we call it charismatic gifts, uh, is gone. And therefore, um, the kind of miracles of healing that Jesus worked throughout his ministry and certainly in John 5 and and John 9, um, both involving important uh, pools of water in Jerusalem, the Pool of Bethesda and then the Pool of Siloam. Uh, we just can't expect that to happen today. Um, whereas other people, uh, by, if you just have enough faith or obedience or some combination thereof, uh, they'll guarantee you that God will work a miracle, including miracles of healing. Um, and I sometimes encourage students to try to put themselves in the position of the 12 disciples. Coming along, John chapter 5, we learn that the Pool of Bethesda is surrounded by uh, people wanting physical healing of one kind or another, and Jesus picks out one. Uh, Interesting, he doesn't try to heal everybody. Sometimes people make the erroneous claim that Jesus healed every sick person he came into contact with. Well. Here he, he picked out one. And uh, at the end of the story, in John 5, 14, Jesus finds the man he heals, the temple, and says to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. So apparently, for that individual, at least, his own personal sin had something to do with the the fact that he had been lame or crippled for a significant period of time. Now, imagine the disciples, a later trip to Jerusalem in chapter 9, and they're traveling, they're walking, and as he went along, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. So so here's a problem that... uh, The man can't have sinned, at least since he was born, in order to cause. But the disciples are thinking along the same lines as as what they thought they learned from previous incident. And so they say, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents said he was born blind. And uh, in in good uh, multiple choice university and seminary fashion, uh, Jesus says, uh, neither A nor B, (laughs) neither of the above. Uh, neither this man nor his parents um it wasn't something that the uh the fetus did in utero it wasn't some generational sin being visited from the parents but so that the works of god might be displayed in him it's not one size fits all um and so we have to be open to the fact that some suffering is a direct result of one person or a group of people sins. Others are not in the least, other than the general fact that we live in a fallen world and, and uh, human fallenness, according to uh, Genesis 3, uh, has affected all of creation, um, and so evil happens. Uh, just an amazing diversity, so true to life, um, but it doesn't uh, fit. Many people's uh, one-size-fits-all stereotypes.
0: Craig, let's move to a, a different topic that you write on. Uh, the second second one you address after the problem of evil is the issue of hell. Um, and there's a, a couple of things that I'm interested in in this. One is the uh, you you tackle the the I think the fairly common response. Uh, in that I suspect you've encountered in the blogosphere that it's, that it's just simply unfair for the unbelieving little old lady who never hurt anyone, <laughs> and 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 tyrants like Hitler, Stalin, Paul Pot, and others, to have the same fate. Um, so how, how would you respond to that? And then I'm also interested to hear some of what some of what you think the New Testament has to say about the destiny of those who have never heard the gospel.
2: Yeah. Well, here a passage that I almost never see uh, referenced in conversations uh, is Luke 12, 47 and 48 at the end of one of Jesus' parables um, about a faithful and an unfaithful servant. And at the end, um, Jesus says, the servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does, sorry, but the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who's been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. So the short answer to the question of uh, do all people in hell suffer equally, I think, uh, is no, not in the least. Um, Jesus doesn't say that some of them are let off the hook altogether. Um, But in the imagery of the parable, uh, some are are struck just a little bit and others uh, a lot, Um, which makes sense if you realize that uh, throughout the New Testament, for that matter, throughout the Old Testament, judgment is said to be by works. Salvation is by grace, but judgment is by works. And everybody's works differ radically. Um, Some people really are a whole lot more evil than others. Um, In terms of those who've never had uh, a chance to respond to a a credible presentation of the gospel, um, I go back to uh, a conversation I had Now, um, about 40 years ago, when I was uh, a graduate student, um, and uh, one of my classmates, uh, also doing a PhD in New Testament, was uh, from Ghana. And he was already uh, a middle-aged man at that time. Um, So he would have uh, grown up um, in the 40s. And remembers, and remembered, he's with the Lord now, but uh, he told me the story of how um, he was a little boy when uh, some Western missionaries came to his village, a a largely animist village. And and it was one of those situations that you read about and that missionaries dream about where there was quite a significant response from the villagers uh, to the preaching of the word. Um, And... uh, he was taken with the the account uh of what god has done for us that we couldn't do for ourselves and he um asked the missionary a, a very sincere question he said um i am i am my father's son uh, my father passed away a uh, year year or two ago if he were here i have no doubt that uh, he would be among those of us who are uh, who are accepting your message. Where where is he today? Well, there's the question. The 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 response the missionaries maybe don't want to be confronted with. <laughs> but uh, he said that they turned to Romans chapter two, um, where Paul says in verse 14, the Gentiles, when the Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required of the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law, this is verse 15 now, are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts, sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. And that has often been summed up or paraphrased uh, with the saying, which uh, apparently these missionaries gave uh, this boy, that uh, God will judge people on the basis of the light they have received. And they did not promise him, uh, we know that your dad's with Jesus, but they said there's there's at least good reason uh, to hope for that um and uh, what's fascinating about that is that uh, it took place in the 1940s um which is well into uh the uh AD era of uh, of world history um and so I've I've often wondered um I don't claim to be able to to quote chapter and verse but but I just raised the question um Should we think of um, the moment or the time in a person or community's life when they first hear a a presentation of the genuine gospel as the time when B.C. shifts to A.D. for them? And uh, uh, certainly we don't uh, treat uh, pre-Christian Jews as uh, 100 percent lost and yet not one of them ever heard the name of jesus Uh, they had some sense of him uh, of a coming messiah just as as other cultures at times have had traditions about uh, a coming age of uh, liberation Um, but uh, it's an interesting question it makes sense to me it led this boy to become a believer and uh, eventually grow up and have uh, uh, quite an effective ministry in Africa.
1: Well, I think it's super interesting, and I've read I don't know how many hundreds of apologetics books, but there are a few times in this book I paused and was like, you know what? I hadn't quite thought of that, and I appreciate you said we don't know this for sure. We're ha- we're making an educated guess based on God's character and the scriptures, But another one you pointed out was about near-death experiences and the Mm. possibility that God may reveal himself to people right before they die. Can you explain what you mean by that?
2: Well, a lot of people have tried to deal with um, the unevangelized by saying um, maybe there'll be a second chance after death. Um, Maybe uh, if they haven't been really bad people, Uh, They go to purgatory, but then they pay for their sins, and then they get to go to heaven, sort of a classic uh, traditional Catholic belief. Um, But are there explanations that are consistent with Hebrews 9? It's appointed to a person to die and then to die once, and then comes judgment. Um, And in our era of uh, amazing uh, medicine and the uh, and surgery and the ability to uh, save lives. Uh, there are plenty of people. Uh, I know several personally um, who are as trustworthy as, as anybody I've met uh, and certainly read very credible and believable stories um, from others who have uh, flatlined on the operating table and then uh, been brought back to uh, consciousness, sometimes after uh, quite a significant period of time when the doctors really thought they had lost them, and they report having met Jesus or met an angel or seen a beautiful, light-filled Place with the glorious looking people that they couldn't identify, or something that uh, turned their spiritual lives around. Um, Perhaps they even had conversations uh, in this visionary like uh, time. Uh, But then, in one way or another, uh, sometimes. With the sense of it's not your time yet, uh, being brought back, as it were, to this world, Um, but uh, living, serving Jesus afterwards, sometimes not having been believers, sometimes having been nominal believers, uh, but uh, having their lives transformed by that experience. If even a few of those stories represent a genuine experience with the Lord, then the interesting question is, how many other people today and throughout history may Christ have revealed himself to in similar fashion? But because we don't have modern technology everywhere and until today, we didn't have today's technology at all. Um, those people then went on to actually die and not be uh, able to be brought back to life at all and, and tell us about their experiences. Um, I have I've had uh, good friends uh, just agonize over the death of a, a parent or a child or brother, sister, um, who, as far as they knew, uh, had had never even come close to making a profession of faith. Um, I think of one guy who just basically said, can you give me any kind of hope uh, that's biblical? Uh, Because all he had ever heard was, if you die like that, you're in hell, and it's the worst possible thing. And I said, well, I, I can't give you hope. For this individual, because I know something about him uh, that you don't know. But here, let me let me tell you what I have just recounted to you. And he said, he said, that's enough. I don't need more than that. That that gives me hope.
0: Craig, let's uh, move to another topic that you pick up here. Um, So we've 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 moved from the problem of evil to the issue of hell and what to do about people who have never heard. Uh, what about slavery? Uh, how, how do we understand the New Testament when it speaks to slavery either directly or indirectly? And I think in particular, looking at this from a, from a setting that we're in today, post abolition of slavery in the United States, why, why do you think that the New Testament never called for, directly for the, for the abolition of slavery?
2: It's it's a a question. um, (laughs) I struggle to come up with a good analogy, but it's a question that might be something like um, people in a couple thousand years researching the twenty first century and and saying um, why why didn't those people uh, back then ever um, think of uh, moving into uh, dimension 548 of reality and creating utopia and we're going (laughs) dimension 500 what what are you talking about I use that example because I'm trying to think of something that would have just been almost unimaginable or incomprehensible. There had been a handful of slave revolts in the Greek and Roman world, and every one of them ended up uh, in horrible massacres by the uh, authorities. to imagine a world in which approximately one third of everyone alive that they knew about was a slave, um, what well, what would be a world without professional or college or high school sports? I don't know. Um, <laughs> we 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 thought we might have to conceive of it during COVID, and and That's people are trying desperately to to avoid that notion. Um, What we do find, however, um, we find a a brief comment in 1 Corinthians 7 when uh, Paul is talking about not letting um, one's situation in life, uh, once he became a Christian, turn into some desire to change it dramatically. But he then says, but if you can escape slavery, if you have that opportunity, take advantage of it. But then the little letter to Philemon, um, tucked in between Titus and Hebrews, and if two pages of the Bible stick together, we might miss it all together, um, is just a marvelous, uh, very low key. Uh, Very tactful. It doesn't always sound tactful to us, but by ancient standards, where uh, a superior like Paul could have simply commanded uh, a subordinate um, like Philemon, it it really is a a masterpiece of tact. Um, Here's this runaway slave. Paul is sending him back home. What a dangerous thing to do. But he is pleading with his master, um, not only not to punish him, not to mistreat him, but to treat him like he would Paul himself. He describes how he became a Christian, um, thanks to Paul's own ministry under house arrest in Rome. Um, He talks about wanting to have kept Onesimus with him, which would have been possible legally only if the man had been uh, set free. Um, He promises to repay him, uh, to repay Philemon for anything that uh, he is owed. If that means Onesimus stole something, or if it just means he was out all of the man hours. And then um, having said all of this, he says, confident, this is verse 21, of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask well, there's only one thing left that he hasn't explicitly asked, and that 's for Philemon to set Onesimus free if early church tradition can be believed that 's exactly what did happen, and Onesimus became the the bishop uh, in and around Ephesus in the latter years of the first century. Um, so I really think we overemphasize the passages that just talk about slaves being good servants to their masters, um, and, and forget the world that people were living in, um, but also forget uh, the New Testament drops some very serious hints that there's a better way that people should be working for.
1: Hmm. Craig, I've got one last question for you. This was perhaps my favorite chapter in the book, is when you talked about the miracles of Jesus— the reasons why Jesus did miracles, the reasons he didn't do miracles, and how kind of the quantity and quality of miracles Jesus does is unique in the history of like miracle workers. could you explain kind of the unique point you were making in that chapter for us
2: if if you uh read one miracle at a time uh, not counting repeats <laughs> Matthew through John and simply Look at what the text says or implies. You find that certainly Jesus works miracles uh, out of compassion for people, and he works them uh, both sometimes in response to faith, but also to instill faith where there is none. And it's about half and half that you get those kind of references. So beware of. Of making any one-size-fits-all comments there. Sometimes uh, the issue of sin is involved. Often it isn't. Um, It does seem that there are a disproportionate number of situations where he deliberately does something on a Sabbath when it's never a life-threatening emergency. He could just as well have waited a day, but he's making a point about the, the true meaning of Sabbath. And there's a disproportionate uh, number of what we might call the outcasts within Israel um, who get attention. Uh, we we never have an account of Jesus healing uh, a person who's fairly well to do of anything. Hmm. Uh, but none of those add up to uh, the pattern that you find when. You look at Isaiah 35, the different kinds of miracles that are promised to be part of the messianic age. Uh, Jesus himself will quote that when messengers from John the Baptist, when he's thrown in prison, come and say, are you the one uh, who is to come or should we look for another? And he just says, go back and tell John what you see and hear. Um the blind see, the deaf hear, the the lame walk, and then he adds, and the good news have have uh, the poor have good news preached to them. Over and over again, the main reason for the miracles uh, is, uh, as Jesus himself will say in another place in uh, in Luke twelve, if um, I cast out demons by the finger of God then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And if the kingdom has come, there must be a king. Um, I think of the stilling of the storm and so many sermons that end with, and God will still the storms of your life too, except that he doesn't always. Um, But if you read the way the story ends, it says that the disciples marveled and they said, who is this that even wind and waves obey him? Above all, the the miracles of Jesus are meant to point people back to him and ask and try to answer that same question. Uh, You want to use, uh, since this is an academic podcast, uh, some fancy language. They're, first of all, Christological, rather than anthropological in focus. They're Christ-centered rather than human-centered.
1: Craig, we uh, are super grateful for your ministry here at Biola. You've been faithful to scriptures just for so many years and uh, just had a winsomeness and a kindness about how you approach this. And I think people can pick up that in this podcast, but also it's clear in your latest book that we've been talking about, Can We Still Believe in God? So for our listeners, we've talked about The problem of hell, problem of evil, miracles, a few other topics such as slavery. But you also talk about what about predestination, the problem of uh, unanswered Mm -hmm. prayers, apparent contradictions in the Bible, and is the Christian life undesirable? So we definitely want to commend this to our listeners. Again, it's called Can We Still Believe in God by Dr. Craig Blomberg. Craig, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Well, you're very kind. and. I know you wouldn't want to say it, so I'll say it for you, but uh, if there's not enough detail in that book, there's this book called Evidence That Demands a <laughs> on several editions, and the most recent one is by far the best, um, mm. and that will have all the other good answers.
1: Well, you just gave me some great fuel to go to my dad and tell him um, that you said <laughs> it's the best, so you've made my day. Um, we really appreciate you, and for those of you listen in these are the kind of conversations that we have at talbot regular and our classes is on philosophy ethics apologetics new testament if you thought about going back and studying uh, we hope you consider studying with us so thanks for coming on craig and uh this has Very been an welcome. episode of the podcast think biblically conversations on faith and culture to learn more about us and today's guest craig blomberg and to find more episodes go to biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically that's biola.edu slash thinkbiblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.